Production support comes from Smithville, a locally owned business serving central and southern Indiana since 1922 with residential and business internet, voice, and security services. Smithville, local pride, global technology. Information at smithville.net. And from IU School of Public Health Bloomington, addressing public health needs by preventing disease, promoting health, and improving quality of life across the state and around the world through research, teaching, and community engagement. Offering undergraduate and advanced degrees. publichealth.indiana.edu. Welcome to Noon Edition. I'm Bob Zaltzberg, editor of the Herald Times, along with co-host Mary Catherine Carmichael. And today we're going to talk about the question, should college athletes be paid? As a business model, college sports is a multi-million dollar industry. Men's football and basketball bring in a whole lot of money for schools mm-hmm. and television networks. Many athletes receive college tuition to participate in collegiate athletics. But there's been a debate uh, sort of growing on whether or not these athletes should get a uh, little more money for what they do. Some say a system set up for the athletes to be students first will not likely begin compensating athletes for their performance. But others argue that uh, athletes deserve to make a portion of the money they help the schools generate. And that's those are the topics we're going to be getting into today uh, with four great guests who we have in the studio with us. Julie Cromer is here. Julie is the executive associate athletic director at Indiana University. Galen Clavio is here. He's assistant professor of sports management at the School of Public Health at Indiana University. Steve Ross is joining us by phone. Steve is the director of the Penn State Institute for Sports Law um, at Dickinson School, the School, Dickinson School of Law at Penn State. And Pete Bachman is here to give us a different perspective. He's a junior on the Indiana University football team. So if you want to join us on the program, please phone us at 855-0811 or 877-285-9348. You can also join a live chat at wfiu.org slash Noon Edition, and you can follow us on Twitter at Noon Edition. So it's a great topic, and there's a lot going on with this. I, I was looking for some things online today. There was a, one of the quotes that jumped out at me was from Mark Emmert from the NCA, who just said on Monday – that uh, one thing that sets the fundamental tone is there are, there are very few members and virtually no university president that thinks it's a good idea to convert student-athletes into paid employees. Um, then you have something very different from collegiate athletics. One of the guiding principles in the NCAA has been that this is about students who play sports. So that's what the NCAA's current position is. And I think I'm going to bring in uh, Steve Ross right away because, Steve, you've done a lot of work on this. and done some analysis on how it may may be possible to do, and I think you teach that in a class at Penn State. Is that correct? Yeah. So uh, talk about uh, the your perspective on this. I mean, is is Mark Emmert right? Um, is this something that just we just shouldn't be talking about? Well, let me uh, thank you for inviting me, and I look forward to uh, having a conversation with such a great panel that your producer has assembled. Um, so let me start with a couple of uh, observations. First, uh, I approach it from the antitrust law position. I'm originally an antitrust professor, and the leading court case on this, which I read as saying that uh, despite all the nice, high-sounding rhetoric, the uh, NCAA's goal of amateurism really is not a legitimate and defensible goal. Uh, In fact, it's not defensible, in my opinion, on its own terms, because there are significant numbers of student-athletes who get burnout and continue to participate in sports, not for the inherent benefits, but to continue to earn the athletic scholarship. They are not really amateurs. What I think sustains the rule against paying players is another NCAA principle, which is to maintain a clear line of demarcation between professional sports and college sports. No offense to Mr. Bachman, but if you look at the quality of Division I football compared to the National Football League, it is way greater than the difference between Major League Baseball and AAA baseball, yet college football is way more popular because it is college football. And so the uh, empirical question is, is there some level of payment to athletes that will ruin that perception? 
This is not about high ethics. This is just about marketing. And in my opinion, it's no different than the fact that NASCAR distinguishes itself from Formula One or IndyCar racing by having very strict limits on the kind of engineering changes racing cars can drive. If paying Mr. Bachman a lot of money would drive fans away from college football, then it's a bad idea. If you could continue, if you could pay Mr. Bachman a lot of money and it wouldn't drive fans away from football, then it seems to me that the NCAA is on very shaky grounds to insist that it's that uh, we're going to agree not to pay players. All right. Julie Cromer, you want to respond? Uh, sure, I'd be happy to. I'm also interested to hear what Pete has to say about this as well. Uh, thanks for the opportunity to be here. And, and I think this is not only a timely topic, but it's really important because our landscape has changed. And um, while I don't necessarily take direct issue uh, with any of the points that have been made, I come to it in a, in a different way. And that is that we're operating uh, as NCAA members under legislation that I think um, has uh, outlasted its culture and environment. And what I mean by that is we're operating under a scholarship system that fundamentally was designed in the 1950s. And the landscape of college athletics looked very different then. Our students um, were not practicing as much. They were not competing in as many games. They were not traveling as far. The time demands were were very different. And, and frankly, the interests in uh, the, the students and their interest in working and spending extra time on their sport, I think, has evolved over the decades as well. So uh, we're just in a very different environment. And so I, I think the foundational elements, in addition to the principle of amateurism, which we could probably debate for the entire hour, but the foundational elements that limit what we can provide to student-athletes are vastly outdated. Mm-hmm. So the, the other thing that I think has happened to accelerate this over the last five 10 years, but particularly five years with conference realignment and the network contracts is we have a lot of money flowing into the system now that is new money and greater money. And rather than being on the front end and thinking of how we could get that to our student athletes in the system, we retained old bylaws that limit what we can give to them. At the same time, we have no limits on salaries and buildings and travel budgets and the type of equipment. So we find a way to spend that money. And the athletes indirectly benefit from that. But I wish we would have, in hindsight, as an NCAA membership, thought ahead as we knew this new money was coming into the system, as we can now, as we're heading into another round of renegotiated contracts over the next three to five years, and and planned accordingly to adjust to today's model and ideas of amateurism and and share a little bit more with the student athletes. Mm-hmm. That's uh, I want you and Pete both to sort of answer this. But what what do the what are the athletes allowed to have? Say, Pete, are you a full scholarship football player? That's mm-hmm. correct. Mm-hmm. So you get all your what's paid for for you? I get my books paid for, the room and board, and um, my meals. Mm-hmm. That's part of the check. So mm-hmm. freshman year, you're. They pay for the room and board and books, and you're in the dorms. However, once when you're done in the dorms, then each month we get a scholarship check. And that scholarship check, they already take out our training table, which we eat at the stadium. That also has left over in the scholarship check money to pay for our rent and also more ho- or more food. Mm-hmm. However, towards the end of the month, I'm an offensive lineman. <laughs> So I'm always getting food kind of a late big at guy, night. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm always spending more than I bring in. Mm-hmm. And so by the end of the month, I'm cutting into my own savings to pay for things. Mm-hmm. Sorry to interrupt, but Pete, oh. you're also getting free tuition, right? Yeah, yeah that's the biggest thing. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> and, and what happens when you like go on a ro- the road to a game? Is there a per diem that you get? Uh, for IU, for at least football – Every time we go on the road, even like tonight, we have a home game tomorrow, um, we'll go to the hotel. Hotel's paid for. We'll have a snack tonight and a, a travel dinner tonight. Then tomorrow morning, we'll have our breakfast, we'll have lunch, 
and then we'll a light lunch, and then we'll have our pregame meal. Mm-hmm. So that's all paid for as well. Yeah, mm-hmm. that that um, just not to interrupt Pete, but that happens differently based on the sports. So uh, with football, there are so many students involved. Typically, that we provide the meals for them, and the logistics are just easier to do it that way. With some of the other sports, they get a per diem, but it's limited by the campus limits. So whatever we're able to provide IU employees to go to a certain market for IU business limits, what we're able to provide the student athletes when they're on the road with us. Pete's right in the elements of the scholarship. um, And and I think he uh, actually gave a great example of of one of the easiest um, and in my, uh, my, to my way of thinking, the most indefensible uh, limitations we have. And that is we can only provide so much food to student athletes. And there's a section in the rule book that talks about meals and what we can provide. And I'm not sure why we are still worried about that. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, if we could eliminate six bylaws right now and just open our training table, which is already open, and then allow them to take, you know, snacks and things as they go and come to it at any point of the day, um, that seems to make sense to me. It's not going to, I think, inflame, you know, the greater sensibilities of our American culture. And yet, we continue to have those sorts of bylaws on the books. Mm-hmm. Um, so travel, also tutors are provided to, to Steve's point, some of the other mm-hmm. things that our student athletes um, receive for free athletic training, um, their medical care, um, their, um, I was trying to think of one other item. The, another, that's for uh, everybody. That's yeah, that's everybody. And then, you know, the marketing and the media relations and those sorts of things are program specific. But there are a lot of things that are indirect uh, mm-hmm. benefits they are allowed to receive. Yeah. Now, Galen, uh, you studied a lot of different parts of sports, and, and uh, I know part of your interest is in sport and new media, and right. so a lot of changing times. So you've, you're seeing this, all these changes, all these, ex- these explosive changes in sports. Where do you come down on this issue? I am very much in favor of uh, much greater compensation of college athletes, particularly those in the, the high-revenue sports, the ones that are bringing in uh, significant amounts of money to Division One athletic programs. And I think that... You know, I, I think Julie took a lot of my talking points away at the beginning, which is fine. I, I'm glad that those are out there already. But if you look at the explosion just in television revenue that's occurred from the early 1990s when we had the first beginnings of what became the BCS to where we are now with the Big Ten Network and the Pac-12 Network and you know the, the hundreds of millions of dollars that ESPN and Fox and others are spending on, on just college football, not, to, not even to mention college basketball in that tournament – uh, the amount of money has increased so much, and what we've done with that money is we've distributed it to everything else besides the athletes that are really at the core of generating the revenue and the ratings uh, that make those contracts possible. And, you know, you look at the athletic budget numbers, they've, they've gone up exponentially. We're spending on coaches' salaries. We're spending on facilities. We're spending on all these different things. And yet the basic compensation model for athletes hasn't changed in that time period. And to me, there's that's not just ethically wrong. There's a moral component to that as well that I think really needs to be answered. Mm-hmm. All right. Galen, um, could I ask a question, if you don't mind? Sure, sure. go ahead. When, when, you're, when you say that the athletes ought to receive more, are you advocating a market model where athletes would receive that which they are uh, generating, or is this still more in the like parental view, we're making more money and we should give a higher allowance to athletes. And the reason I ask is because I think there's a very good economic case to be made that the athletes who are really bringing in the money are a very small number of star athletes. And the marginal athletes' uh, economic value in a completely professionalized, pure free market might actually be less than the Forty thousand to fifty thousand dollars a year that Pete Bachman is receiving between tuition, room, and board, and books. Are you in state or out of state, Pete? I'm out of state, so I get the big chunk. <laughs> I, I, I understand what you're saying, Steve, and I and I, I am, and I am advocating more towards a market-based model because I think that is the fairest approach, and I think it's an approach we could easily arrive at. We've we've managed to figure out market approaches in almost every other area of sport. I don't see why this area of college athletics is seemingly off limits to that. But I think even even when you talk about something like tuition and room and board, those numbers vary considerably just based 
upon where you're going to school. I mean, the student athlete that's at Notre Dame or at Miami or at Vanderbilt is receiving a significantly higher level of compensation than the in-state student at Texas Tech, where you could basically collect aluminum cans on the side of the road and get tuition paid for. I mean, it's it's just not the amount of money that we're, we're outlaying in that. And that's no offense to Texas Tech, but the point is the tuition's much less there, and and the overall costs are much less there. So, even in a, in a fairness level, we could look at it right now and say that what we're providing to student athletes is inequitable uh, across various NCAA institutions. All right, I want to give our phone numbers and those folks from Texas Tech that want to call in, please <laughs> feel free. Eight five five zero eight one one in Bloomington, eight seven seven two eight five nine three four eight outside of the Bloomington area. You can also join the live chat at wfiu.org slash noon edition. You can follow uh, us on Twitter at Noon Edition. Um, well, w- wait a minute. Once again, it's all of us sitting around talking about what's good for Pete. Pete, what do you think what is good for you? Uh, personally, I mean, I can't get a job because I'm full-time yeah, athlete. Yeah, I, I want to talk about that a little bit. How's, so yeah. I look at it from that standpoint is I can't go out and make more money than I'm making right now. Mm-hmm. And the money I'm making right now is I lose it all by the end of the month through expenses. And if I was able to go get a job, I'd be making a lot more and uh, to put in my savings. Now, I do get all the money to go towards school and everything, so I do get that point. But I'm more in favor of probably more of the stipend part, more each month, just from the standpoint of if you're paying certain players each month per their performance or how much they play – what their star power is, then you're getting a lot of animosity on a team. Because if the starting five offensive linemen get a lot more than the, the second string, then all of a sudden guys are starting to not like each other and guys are going to be focusing a lot more on football and making sure they get that starting spot to make that money, and now they're not going to be focusing on the school part, which is we're student-athletes. So mm-hmm. you're going to lose that part of the – Pete, can I, Pete, can I, that's a great point, and I wonder if I could just follow up and ask you a question. If you have friends who play for the so-called uh, equivalency sports like baseball, uh, tennis, or track, where, as, some, as you may know, the star athletes receive a full scholarship and the less star athletes might receive as little as a one-quarter scholarship. Um, are you aware of this atmosphere of animosity and jealousy and folk and the bad focus on those teams? I do live with a couple of baseball players, actually, and it seems that once when they're here, they kind of, it's in the back of their mind where, hey, this guy's making this much, but he's been hurt all year and he's not even playing at all. But I think it kind of takes a backseat maybe once when they get here and they just focus on being a team. Well, and one thing I would add to this, I mean, we've if you look at an NFL roster or a Major League Baseball roster, there are wide disparities in the amount of money that various athletes are getting paid. And, and yet we still see many of those teams able to come together and play effectively. So, I, I mean, it's an interesting point, but I don't know if it's as big of a deal as maybe we're making it out to be. Maybe, you know, this may be a little generational, too, but you know, I just read the big Sports Illustrated piece on Oklahoma City and the idea that some guys are going into a locker room and playing a guy who played a good, paying a guy who, who played a good game 500 bucks, and then people who are second and third string, they're, you know, they're, they're, not, going to, they're not giving them the, the educational support. They're basically cutting them loose. I mean, that just seems like a horrible system to me. Uh, one of the things that I, I appreciate Pete's comment, and I think he's, uh, I noticed he's a business major, and I think he's acting <laughs> in his own self-interest. Um, one of the things that's an interesting, you have to sort of do a comparison, but uh, without going into all the details quickly, um, in the mid-90s, there used to be a free market for the NFL for development squad players. And these players earned $60,000 a year to be the 53rd, 54th best player on a squad. Um, and that's the NFL. So if an NFL player was only worth, in a free market, $60,000, if they're the 53rd best player, um, I really wonder in a free market what the 53rd best player on Indiana is worth in a free market. And I'd respectfully suggest that it is significantly less than the current amount. And I think one of the things that 
advocates of paying players because of market concerns have, and I'm not saying that any of the other panelists made this point, but if you're going to go to a market, I think you have to accept the fact that the end result is going to be in a market um, a lot of these players will receive less, and it is entirely conceivable that the total, quote, payroll for football actually could go down. In other words, if we paid the 85 um, scholarship players on the Indiana football team uh, what their market value is, the total market value might well be less than 85 times the full educational value, which is what they're being paid now. Is that even desirable, though? I'm not saying it necessarily is, but I'm just saying that if, if I, I think advocates of change need to be clear on what their theory is. If, the, if we are saying we're continuing the sort of in local parentis welfare model and we now have some more money so we ought to give all players a modest stipend, then that leads to certain policy conclusions. If, on the other hand, we're saying we're making all this money. The players are the ones who are earning the money. They deserve, in a capitalist system, a fair share of the money they are generating. Then I think what we're really saying is the money ought to be going to the star athletes who are generating that money and not to the more marginal player where it was a close call whether they'd be a walk-on or get a scholarship. Well, I think the response, at least from my perspective on that, would be if you look at the professional models that are out there, that's why we have player unions that collectively bargain with the leagues. I mean, if you look at the market value for, say, a a reserve linebacker in the NFL, it's probably not very much because that's a a position where you can come in with a certain degree of physicality and maybe maybe not that much skill and be a warm body on a roster. But there's negotiated minimum salaries that every league has, and those minimum salaries are – probably higher than what the actual market value of the players are. Uh, So the idea that a similar thing could not exist within college football, I I mean, obviously we'd have to see that system take place, but I don't think it's out of the realm of possibility. Well, but let's just listen to what, uh, what, what you said. I think you made a very important point there. I think it detracts from the moral righteous indignation of critics. You, If you want a free market, then you have a free market. Labor unions exist in a free market, but quite frank, but but most of the economy is not based on labor unions because there's too many workers to organize. I think it would be virtually impossible to organize college football players into an effective union. I think the universities would have no problem busting those unions. And in a free market with free collective bargaining under the free rules of American capitalism, you would not have minimum salaries. Now, once you start saying, well, we should have minimum salaries anyway because it's the fair, welfare thing to do, now it seems to me you're no longer arguing a capitalist model and you need to have some other normative ethical justifications, which puts me back to, I think, um, uh, the point that Julie made, which is more of a stipends welfare model. Um, And let me just add one other quick point on something Julie said. She says she's not sure why we have limits on food. And I will suggest an answer, because the NCAA member schools, whenever they think about a rule change, they think, one, is it a good idea? But two, is there any way another school could get an advantage over me? And I think a lot of member schools, in fact, it might even be Indiana University, might think, If we do not limit the amount of food, Michigan will provide so much better, more expensive food than Indiana that we will, uh, it'll be even harder for us to recruit against Michigan, so we don't want to do it. I'm not saying that's the position of the Indiana University Athletic Department, but that is the position of many athletic departments. Any change that could help one of our rivals more than me, I'm against. Okay, we're going to the phones. We have so many questions, so many avenues to go. But we're get, we have Doug from Lions on the phone. Doug? Hi, good afternoon, guys. Hi. Interesting subject. Um, I, I'm looking at this and listening to you folks, and this sounds more like a revenue generation scheme than academic pursuits. Um, isn't the idea for the students to get an education, like, say, an MBA, and then if they want to go into sports management after their college career and if they don't make the cut for triple-A ball or football, they've got something to fall back on. Uh, and I'll let you guys 
have it from here. We're going we're gonna to let uh, Pete, our student athlete, uh, talk about that first. I mean, I it, we're definitely here for uh, the uh, the student part of it, and we're also being an athlete. I mean, we love our sport, but in the end, we are here to get the education. And so when we're talking about the market system of paying guys, that's when you're going to start losing the academic side of everything because those star athletes are no longer going to want to focus on the academic part, and they're here to graduate in hopefully four years. And when you start paying guys too much money and – Guys are just not going to focus on what they're really here to do. And it is, it is true that the members of your football team go to class. Yes. Oh, yes. Uh, oh, yeah. They're, they're oh, checked yeah. up on, they go to class, they do their work. And there will be yep. punishments if you aren't. Pete's team actually currently has more Big Ten all-academic honorees than we've ever carried at Indiana University. So mm-hmm. he comes to it by a pretty pure uh, viewpoint, I think, and, and one that's earned. And I appreciate his point. Motivation is what we're talking about here. And when you have kids who have a skill set and a body that's only going to last so long before it ages them out of the window when they can be competitive in their sport, I think it would be very tempting to prioritize their sport, perhaps even more than some of them do now, um, over academics because in their minds they could always come back to college. And mm-hmm. I, I think that is one of the dangers of, um, of a free market approach. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We're going to have to take a short break. Uh, we're halfway through the program. We're talking about uh, whether college athletes should be paid uh, a stipend or in a free market system or in any other way. So uh, you're listening to Noon Edition. We'll be right back. This is Noon Edition on WFIU. Production support comes from Smithville. Information at smithville.net. And IU School of Public Health Bloomington. Online at publichealth.indiana.edu. WFIU News covers South Central Indiana and the state each day. You can read news throughout the day as it's posted on our website at wfiu.org. And you can pick up a digest of all the top stories. It's like a newspaper delivered to your inbox each afternoon. It's a free and easy way to stay on top of not only the headlines, but also the in-depth audio, video, and print news stories you can't get anywhere else. Subscribe right now at WFIU.org news. Welcome back to Noon Edition. I'm Bob Zaltzberg, editor of the Herald Times, along with Mary Catherine Carmichael. And today we're talking about uh, college athletics and specifically the question, should college athletes be paid? We have four great guests with us. Uh, Julie Cromer is here in the studio. She's executive associate athletic director at Indiana University. Galen Clavio is here. He's assistant professor of sports management in the School of Public Health at IU. Steve Ross has joined us by phone. He's the director of the Penn State Institute uh, for Sports Law at at the uh, Dickinson School of Law at at Penn State. And also Pete Bachman is here. He's a junior on the Indiana University football team. He's a senior uh, by academic standards. He's a redshirt junior on the IU uh, football team. If you want to join the conversation, call us at 855-0811 in Bloomington or 877-285-9348 outside of the Bloomington area. You can also join the live chat at wfiu.org slash noon edition, and we hope to hear from some of you during this half of the show. Let me kind of summarize, I think, where we've been in the first half of the show. It sounds like... um, there's a lot of sentiment for getting more um, resources to the athletes, and you know we we've sort of acknowledged that uh, the model has changed. Things are exploding. There's a lot more money coming into the system. Uh, the debate, a lot of the debate we seem to have was was over. Uh, I think what Steve called uh, you know a marketing model, and Steve referred to a welfare model. I don't know about, but I guess I, you can refer to them that way. But. The, the other model, the welfare model, would be more of a stipend kind of model where everybody gets the same thing. Um, Steve, I wanted to, to uh, ask you about that because I know in the, the work that Sports Illustrated did in 2011, they came up with what they thought was a, a plan. I think they talked to I, – I know when I read to the bottom of their story, they had talked to 
several people that said they thought $1,000 a month as a stipend would be reasonable. I think they had come up with some other calculations at some schools. It was more like $1,400 a month if they split up the money properly. I mean, you were one of the, their main sources, and they looked at a lot of your work in that. I mean, what did you think of their conclusion? Yeah, I don't, uh, the, uh, I don't have any reason to know more than anybody else what's fair. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm not a philosopher or an ethicist, so, so I have no idea what a fair amount of money is. Uh, I would suggest that uh, what I've suggested in a, a piece on the Tulane Law Review, and if you go to my website at Penn State, I, you can get a copy of it, uh, I suggest more of a market-based model where football becomes like baseball. Uh, I've actually proposed for cost-saving measures that the total full scholarships be reduced from 85 to 55, but that it be portioned off, and the star athlete could receive up to one and a half full scholarships in a grant, and a um, a uh, more marginal player could receive as little as a quarter scholarship plus any amount of financial aid that they would need that was need-based. So any kid who uh, parents could not afford to pay could still, and the university could help them out by applying through all the right sources for need-based financial aid to bring it back up to the full uh, to the full cost. Uh, I think that uh, I think paying a player as much as twenty thousand a year uh, would not put him at a place like Indiana U- University above the more affluent students on campus driving around in fancy cars that their parents are paying for. And I do not think would ruin the model of the demarcation between pro sports and college sports. I also think that paying athletes differentially would help competitive balance and, quite frankly, help Hoosier football. Right now, there are about five players who would be starting fullbacks at uh, Indiana, no offense to your uh, your teammate, but they chose to go to Michigan or Ohio State or USC because they were convinced they were going to be the starter because the coach lied to them. On the other hand, if you had a differential scholarship offering, somebody who actually would start at Indiana University might receive a full scholarship or even a scholarship plus from the Indiana head coach, and and, um, uh, Urban Meyer can only offer that to so many people. That same individual might only receive a half scholarship to go to the Buckeyes. Then the student recruit would know where he stood, and then he could uh, make a decision. And my bet under that system, more student-athletes would end up uh, going to places where they can play and excel as opposed to sitting on the bench for one of the national powerhouses. Mm-hmm. Any reaction to that plan from any of you? We could solve the latter portion by just letting students transfer where they want to, when they want to, and not have uh, their transfers be the subject of the coach uh, or the uh, the conference's rules. But no, you know, actually, the the first part of the plan doesn't sound uh, completely out of the realm of what I was talking about earlier. I, I I think we have to come to a realization though that when we try to treat everybody the same we end up creating more problems than we solve. And whether it's a differential system like Steve is proposing that is closer to the current scholarship compensation model or whether it's something a little more radical, I think there has to be a realization that we can't keep hitting everything with the same sized hammer. Okay, we have a phone call, and it's uh, Andy from Bloomington. Andy? Hey, guys. Uh, uh, Really good show, and a couple of points I I wanted to raise. Uh, I'm in favor of uh, further compensation of athletes and, and uh, in some form, um, more of an extended stipend uh, type of thing would be what I would favor. But a couple of things I would like, like to, to bring into the conversation. Uh, one, uh, it's, it's pretty easy to quantify the actual value of what athletes receive when they're on campus. Um, and obviously out-of-state guys you know, get compensated more than in-state guys, for example. But for other state guys, you know, in Indiana, you're talking about probably a quarter million dollars worth of value, um, you know, over the course of their their career, uh, as long as they stay on campus and uh, and graduate. But here's the thing, you know, who is really generating the value? People talk about the the uh, millions and millions of dollars generated by television revenue, and there are a few star players that people might tune in to watch. But basically, people are tuning in to watch the brand. You know, it's like Jerry Seinfeld said, I, I, I root for laundry. They, they tune in to watch Alabama football or Indiana basketball or something like that. That's, 
that's what's generating the ratings. That's what's generating the money. You know, uh, I'm a labor guy. I'm somebody who uh, who values labor and values, the, you know, all of that. But in terms of what is really generating the money here, uh, people talk about the end of the athletes are generating the money. I would say not. I think the brand is generating the money. That's where the money's coming from. So I wanted to make that point, and then I also wanted to say, beyond the educational value that people get when they're on campus, there is the lifetime earning potential that is vastly enhanced uh, exponentially by getting a college degree that a lot of them uh, also receive, and that's harder to quantify. So I just wanted to throw those two points out. All right, Andy, thanks with, a lot. That's Andy Graham, a sports writer from the HT, I have to say. Yeah. So, uh, with, uh, go ahead, with Steve. all respect to um, that interesting opinion, and I should say I'm a, I'm a Berkeley grad, so uh, I, I can talk about brands, but the Cal brand, quite frankly, the Cal brand and the Indiana brand isn't quite what the Ohio State and Alabama brand is, even though it's the same laundry. And the Indiana brand might not be what it is if Mr. Bachman and his fellow offensive linemen can't uh, uh, can't protect the quarterback. So it is true that there is a lot of brand loyalty, but it is also true, and you just have to look at statistics for schools like Cal and Indiana, that the better the team is, the, the very huge effect it has on attendance. And we see it at Penn State this year, where I know it's a budget the AD at Indiana would love, but we are down to 85,000 people per game because the, the team is not what it used to be. And the reason that the team does well is because of all the players. And uh, the National Football League and Major League Baseball have all developed some very sophisticated ways of figuring out the value of each player, including the, you know, the offensive lineman. And uh, you can work it down to a mathematical proposition, but there is a significant value uh, that is contributing to the grand that the offensive line is contributing more than showing up and wearing crimson and cream. I'm going to switch gears just a little bit unless somebody wants to comment on that. No, as a parent, if I were a parent of a, a wonderful young man like Pete, I'd be concerned about uh, – Really, his health, his long-term health, I think that, um, you know, certainly a sport like football um, takes an extreme toll on the body. And so let's say, heaven forbid, you know, Pete or or my son, my, my make-believe son, suffers a serious injury uh, in the course of, of uh, college football. Um, is there a fund in place to take care of him long-term? Um, What's going to happen to him while all the millions of dollars are are rolling around and and he's left his good health on the field? Sure, that's that's a great question, and um, I think that's another area where we could actually do more. Uh, The answer to that is right now, uh, all of our student-athletes across all 24 of our sports have access to excellent medical care, um, and their rehabilitation is managed either through our athletic training staff or other specialists, and all of that is covered for them. And then at Indiana, we go even further. If that... Um, injury means that they can no longer participate in their sport. We stay committed to their scholarship, and we scholarship them through to graduation, even if that injury happens second day of practice of their freshman year. And we do have a handful of students every year who are um, we, we have them around in our department. They have access to all the other support services we have all the way through, and, and we carry a few of those um, each year. You can buy long-term disability insurance as a family through the NCAA. The NCAA has recently um, increased its flexibility in in both that program and the accessibility of that program. But I, I think that that is an issue, particularly with all the interest in concussions and other long-term um, injuries, that is ripe for discussion. And while I, um, I love the topic of this show and I love talking about this and people are so adamant about paying our student-athletes, I think there are a lot of things in between paying and what we do now that are measures that are equally as important, and you know, that would be a great one to talk mm-hmm. about. Yeah, I mean, we uh, somebody threw out the term in local parentis, so you are serving uh, as a caretaker to some extent for these athletes as they're under your care. Mm-hmm. And, of course, a traumatic brain injury is, is certainly a big issue. But I would say, you know, a lot of these things aren't going to come up. Uh, things Injuries that they would have sustained during their sports time in college may not necessarily turn up until they're in their 40s or 50s. Um, and they can, in fact, be debilitating mm-hmm. at that time. So how long would the, the – uh, I mean, I know they get great, excellent 
uh, great health care, rather, while they're here at school. But um, beyond that, you have to... Yeah, the, the, the terms of the insurance I was speaking of won't cover things like arthritis and, you know, a, a cranky shoulder when you're in your mid-40s, 50s, or 60s, or what have you. And I hope you don't see any of those things, Pete. But a lot of our former student-athletes and all of our sports do, and in part they do because they have been using these muscles, tendons, ligaments in their frame since they were five years old. Um, so uh, there isn't coverage long-term for, for those sorts of um, complications that could develop later in life. <laughs> okay, we're going to go to the phones. And Dave from Bloomington. Dave? heard uh, floated earlier about students going to a school where they will be able to start and play um, immediately. Um, it's kind of an interesting one. We have a number of, of student-athletes here on, in, in Bloomington. Um, who are at IU, who probably would have been great Division One, uh, Division Two, or even Division Three uh, players and starting, but they are here because they have an opportunity to play at a Division One school. Um, I think that kind of comes into play. And could you maybe discuss a little bit of that mentality? Um, you're directing that to Pete, maybe, Pete. What's the exact question you want to want me to answer here? What was the exact question you wanted me to answer? Uh, the question I'd like to have answered, you said that you know student-athletes should go to a school where they will start um, and play. And I, what I see are a number of students that come to the Division One school that probably would start at a Division Two or Three school. Right. But they're, but they're at that Division One school in hopes that they will get the name recognition and the branding from that major institution to propel them in their, into their future. Um, so could you talk about how that comes into play? I mean, from my standpoint, yeah, I could have gone other places and played and probably played even more than I play now. And um, But that, to me, wasn't wasn't as important as being part of something bigger, which was playing in the Big Ten, playing at IU, being at a great academic institution. And so from my standpoint, that's how I looked at it. And I would work my way up into being a player. I knew I wasn't at the level I needed to be once when I got here because, I mean, there's some great competition here. But I was willing to take on that challenge opposed to going to a lesser school that doesn't have that name recognition. So I – yeah, the name recognition did draw me in. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That, that and the academic opportunities, a lot of different things. It sounds like. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, speaking of academics, I have to leave shortly to actually go teach a class. Okay. But I, I <laughs> wanted to um, clarify, because I think the caller's question was based on something I said. I'm not suggesting that every student athlete should go to the place where they can play the most and start. I'm suggesting that student athletes ought to be able to make an informed decision. Now, between Division One and Division Two, or One and AA, uh, a, a recruited student athlete can make that choice. They can decide to go to a school that's better educationally, plays in a higher profile conference for whatever reason, even if they might uh, not play as much or it might be a bigger challenge. My concern right now is that in, in um, there is no effective signal. Uh, every coach tells every player they're going to have a great opportunity to start, and players choosing among Division I schools don't really know how the coach values them and how the coach assesses their talent. And quite frankly, the coaches know more than you do uh, about how likely it is you're going to play. If you offered football players differential scholarships, a a coach who who is confident that you were going to start at their school would offer you a full scholarship. A coach who thought you would be competing with three other guys might offer you a half scholarship. Now, if somebody wants to go to a school to be a backup, they can do it. Matt Castles went to USC, was a backup for four years, and is playing in the NFL. So it's perfectly fine by me for student-athletes to make the – I thought the choices that Pete uh, mentioned – or great choices. He sounds like just a very mature, wise young man, but it, was, it ought to be a well-informed decision, and one of the ways to give student-athletes more information is to make coaches put a value on their expected contribution to the school's program. Um, Steve, if I could ask you very quickly before you, I know you have to go, but yeah. you know, in the system that you're talking about you know, um, and the way that you, you would set it up, do you think that would 
curtail or stop uh, the cheating that goes on now where some universities are – whatever they can offer, they're still going to figure out a way to offer more? Yeah, yeah I, I, I've dealt with this. I do, it will not stop it. I think it would curtail it because I think more people would see this as inappropriate. I think if a student athlete is earning $20,000 in cash or if a, stu- or if a star turning student athlete turns down $20,000 in cash at Indiana to accept a lesser scholarship at Ohio State and then that student athlete cheats, I think there'll be less tolerance of it. There'd be less tolerance of it by people who learn about it behind the scenes. There'd be less tolerance about it when they see people taking under-the-table cash and buying flat-screen TVs like O.J. Mayo did at USC. And the, the problem right now is that so many people feel that the NCAA rules are unfair that they don't really want to cooperate in exposing the cheating. The more you have a, the broader the public perception, doesn't have to be 100%, but the broader the public perception that the NCAA rules are fair, the more likely it is that more people will come forward and it'll be much harder to maintain the cheating because the cheating only goes on um, because nobody knows about it. Okay, Steve, go teach some kids. Thank you. All right. Thanks a lot. That was Steve Ross, director of the Penn State Institute for Sports Law at the Dickinson School of Law. If I can respond to that for just a second. Uh, First off, let me – full disclosure, I don't really – I don't have a problem with the concept of paying recruits to go to your school over another school. Uh, To me, that's like the one moment in this whole process where most students actually get – something approaching their actual value on the open market before they enter a university system. Now, is it cheating? And in big block quotes that I'm making here with my fingers, yes, but it's the same institutions that are doing the cheating that are also part of the NCAA that made the rules in the first place. So the whole system to me is is very broken from, from that perspective. You're almost, again, I think you're better off. It's a more honest situation if you're like, this is what this is what the person's value is, and if there's several options that are on the table where they're considering going to this school or that school, um, the idea that nothing is going on is pretty – people have the blinders on if that's the case. I think it happens a lot more than we'd like to think, particularly with the class of athlete that we're talking about in this discussion. Yeah, well, I think it happens a lot, but I don't think we need to like it well, or condone it. <laughs> it's, well, but but by the same token, that is the economy of this that's going on. Whether we want to like it or condone it, the fact is that it exists. It's existed for a long time. And, you know, there, there's two types of, of ways that this can go. We can either refuse to acknowledge it and put it down in the black market level where it's going to be going on and we only hear about it very occasionally when Sports Illustrated or somebody decides to run a story about it, or we can acknowledge it. And at least make everybody aware and give everybody a, f- a fair shot. Because like a school like Indiana, are we going to pay large amounts of money to try to bring recruits in? I'm guessing not. But is another school – We're not it, going to do that. Fair, I, I wanted to let you <laughs> go ahead and make clear. the affirmation. Yeah, we're but, not going to do that. But are, but are other schools going to do that that we're in direct competition with for athletes? I think the answer is yes. And I think that that creates a competitive disadvantage that not just Indiana has to face but a bunch of other schools. And I think that in and of itself is not fair. I think, you know, anecdotally, I think we've all heard of stories like that. But, I mean, Julie's job, compliance is one of the major things you do. I mean, you're the person who's really in the forefront of making sure that Indiana follows all the rules. Well, I, I don't think it's a one-woman one no. job, but but I, I we do. We have uh, several staff members, and we do a lot of outreach. We do a lot of monitoring. We do a lot of education. And, frankly, we bring people into our system that we believe have high standards of integrity and are proud of the fact that they, you know, earn it the hard way, so to speak. Um, I, I do want to agree with Steve's uh, beginning point before he had to sign off, and that is I don't think paying in any form, whether it's market value, stipends, $5 a walk around money, $100,000 a year is going to change. People who um, will cheat will cheat, and they'll find a different way to cheat. Maybe it won't be cash in envelopes in the locker room or up and down a you know airplane aisle or what have you, but but they will. So what I'm what I'm most interested in and what we try to do with our compliance efforts here is to not only bring in people who are people of integrity, but also then create a system around them to help continue to advance that culture. And I know that there may not be other schools or there may not be other, frankly, regions of the country where the values match up in the same way they do with the Big Ten or in the Midwest. And, you know, that's probably a topic for another show. But 
we take care of what we can here, and um, we decide that that's the way we want to win, and we pursue that. Mm-hmm. We've got about three minutes to go, and I want to give each of you a chance. I mean, we're not going to solve this overnight, obviously, but are there <clears throat> small steps, things that could be done? Pete, what if there's one thing that you know you as a student athlete says, you know, this would really help me um, be a better athlete, but also a better student, and and be able to actually you know put food on my table and all those kind of things. What would, what would I happen? think the stipend of some sort to begin with, and twenty thousand dollars that Steve mentioned sounded great to me. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds great to me too, just to say that. But. Yeah. And and that's a lot. And I think we were talking about earlier. And I was doing the math. You do. $8 an hour for 20 hours because that's our hour limit each week. 20 hours, you times that by a month and then for four months each semester, it comes out to about 2500 bucks a month. And that would be great for me if I could get that just so I could pay for it. And I take a lot of supplements to help stay bigger and then all the food and just some little, just a little bit of extra spending money. And I don't spend a whole lot, but just something to put away in my savings account because I won't have yeah. money at the let, end. Let me clarify. Can you work in the off season when you're not playing football? Can you work? Uh, we really don't have the time to yeah. do that. Mm-hmm. Okay. Any? The only thing I'll say, we didn't mention things like the O'Bannon lawsuit that's going right. on right now, yeah. which is another topic for another show. Yeah. But this reminds me a lot of what happened in Major League Baseball in the late 60s when the money had increased considerably and players were asking, you know, can we get higher levels of salaries? Not a huge amount, just a bit. And the owners were like, no, your guys are lucky to be playing for anything at all. And what ended up happening was about seven years later, the system cracked wide open, thanks to Marvin Miller and, and the, group, the folks involved with that. And we ended up with full free agency in Major League Baseball. I feel like we're heading down that road to a degree with college athletics because the the, the inflexibility of the NCAA and its members uh, as far as compensation of athletes at some point is going to be a tipping point that occurs. And I think um, you know the, the idea that we give nothing or very little to athletes despite the huge revenue increases that we had, I think that that's a, an idea that's going to pass very quickly. Mm-hmm. Julie, 30 seconds. I, I think the stipend idea is it. We've talked about it a lot. Yeah. One thing we did not talk about today was there are several um, opponents who argue Title IX as a barrier to um, paying stipends for student athletes. And I think that's a matter of being smarter and being creative. And there's plenty of money to do that and be within other federal laws we're subject to. So mm-hmm. we were in favor of the stipend uh, last year when the NCA took the vote and initially adopted it and then rescinded mm-hmm. it. And we remain in favor. And, you know, we hope there's a day where we can do that for our student athletes. Okay, we're out of time. I want to thank Julie Cromer, Galen Clavio. Steve Ross and Pete Bachman. Good luck tomorrow, Pete. Thank you. All right. And for Mary Catherine Carmichael, producers Gretchen Frazee and Emily Wright, and engineer Mike Pashkash, I'm Bob Zaltzberg. Thanks for listening. Noon Edition is a production of WFIU and The Herald Times. A podcast of this and other WFIU programs is available at WFIU.org. Production support comes from Smithville, a locally owned business serving central and southern Indiana since 1922 with residential and business internet, voice, and security services. Smithville, local pride, global technology. Information at smithville.net. And from IU School of Public Health Bloomington, Addressing public health needs by preventing disease, promoting health, and improving quality of life across the state and around the world through research, teaching, and community engagement. Offering undergraduate and advanced degrees. publichealth.indiana.edu.